Okay, we're learning Daf Ayin Beis, uh, starting right from the bottom of Ayin Aleph on the Beis Hamadars Ishrei. So, in the Mishnah, discuss that there are different uh, there are different scenarios where a woman, a wife, has the right to sue her husband for a divorce, and there are certain scenarios where the opposite. If the woman is triggering a problem, uh, it's her fault. She's the catalyst for either an argument or a strife or something which undermines the marriage. Then he has the right to compel the divorce and not give her the ksuba. Meaning, typically, it's all up to the husband. He wants to divorce her, divorce her, but give the ksuba. But she can do certain things that we're learning, where she can actually uh, she can actually force uh, force him to divorce at certain times and still get the ksuba. And then we're going to see the inverse, where she's doing certain things where she loses her ksuba. So we said Hamadris Isha. The last one was is that. Guy tells his wife, I'm making a nether on you. He makes a vow on his wife that she is not allowed to go to weddings or to avelos, the house of, of uh, mornings. So the Gemara tries to understand, so that's grounds for divorce. She can use grounds for divorce. So the Gemara tries to understand here. Mishnah, the base of Mishnah, I understand why he has to divorce her if he's asking her to go to these, uh, to these weddings. Because there's this idea of locking the door. Obviously, the Gemara is speaking in as like a euphemism. He's locking the door in front of her, meaning Rashi explains there's an enjoyment. People, people like that from going to the wedding. So he's locking that door. He's, he, it's an abusive thing. And if it's an abusive thing, then, then she has the right to sue for divorce. El if he's saying to her that you have a vow here that you can't go to the house in the morning, what's the big deal? Meaning, what the Gemara is saying, if anything, like, you guys are out of going to the house in the morning, it's not so bad. Like, it's not usually not something people look forward to. So why is that something that she can compel him for divorce? So the Gemara explains, and it explains by quoting a bride. Tana doesn't the bride, so the macher he made stuff. She doesn't go to her neighbors now. Tomorrow, one day, she will die. Then compare herself, but no one will come to eulogize her. Meaning to say, if you're not a good, upstanding citizen, right? You don't participate in the community, and it's hard times, and people won't be there for you as well. Which is even scarier, and nobody will even bury her. In other words, like, she'll totally be forsaken. If she was known as a woman, right? She didn't go out. So the Shiva calls and watch out. Says the Gemara, Tanya says in Bryce, I remember, I remember, used to say, Madisiv, this is a Pasuk in Kohelis, we lean this on Sukkot. Tov, Lachas, Obeis, Ovel, Lachas, Obeis, and Mishra. The Pasuk says, better to go to house of mourning than to go to house of feasting. For that is the end of all people. And what should, and the living people should take it to heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? What are you supposed to take to heart? You should take the matters of death into your, into your mind. So meaning to say, that someone who eulogizes the dead person now, when it comes to his time, other people are going to reciprocate. So in other words, don't be reluctant to do it because one day, um, you're going to be paid back and other people will eulogize you. To cover you, the people who bury the dead now, other people will attend to his burial. The people who raise his meaning when he's raising here and is in raising a voice to eulogize and cry, so then other people will raise their voices for him as well. To lave lavune, somebody who's malave, malava halona sames, which is then escorting the dead. In other words, you walk the dead to the cemetery, so other people will do that for you. For you. And to taunt, someone who carries the dead, like uh, you, know, you bear the coffin, other people will do that for you in the future as well. So that's Olibo. And that's really this interesting perspective that the Gemara is giving us. That's why it's so important to go to the house of mourning. All right, then the Mishnah continued, but the husband can excuse himself, even though usually it's, <coughs> it's grounds for divorce. He says, oh, he's locking me in my house. So he's abusive. He doesn't let me go to the, to the weddings of the house of mourning. But if he claims that he only made the nether on her because of something else, he excuses himself for why he did it, Rashai, then he's permitted to do it, and there's no grounds for a divorce. So that says the Gemara, my Dabar what does it mean by something else? What's his excuse? He, he had a good reason he didn't want her to go. There were bad people, people of Znus, 
who are around either at the wedding or at the mortar's house, and he's trying to protect her from sin. So if, he's, if he has legitimate claim for why he pronounced the vow, then, then we respect that. Amar Vashi, but we, we don't let him just excuse himself with it on a baseless claim. Lo amon el that's only true if that's in a fact. In other words, we looked into the matter, we investigated, and we know, you know, oh, we find out who was there at that wedding, we understand why the husband wouldn't want his wife in that scene. But if it wasn't established that way, it's just his word, local community, he doesn't have the capacity to make the nether, and therefore, it is grounds for divorce. All right, then there's the thing about the telling of the secrets, right? In other words, he said to her, basically, um, and you have to, I'm only going to do something for you on condition that you go tell so-and-so something or you, that you tell me something that so-and-so said. So he's forcing, he's manipulating a situation, basically. So the Gemara says with Tema, what's the big deal? Like, why would a wife, the Gemara's just trying to understand, like, why would a wife consider it a big deal to go tell somebody something? So the Gemara says, we're talking about something very embarrassing. So meaning to say, you know, you can say, imagine a situation where the husband had said something very degrading about that person. And now he's telling his wife, he said it to, about behind their back, you know, he said it to his wife. And now he's telling his wife, if you don't go tell the person the thing that I said about them and you have to go say it to their face, then you know, X, Y, and Z, you're not getting relations tonight, something like that. So then that's obviously, that's abusive. And uh, that's where it's grounds for divorce. All right. He said to her, right, he made a condition. He said, let's say again, similar thing, you know, you're not going to get relations unless on condition that you fill up and pour out the garbage. So the Gemara says, what does that mean? The Tiavid would let her do that. And the question that the Gemara is saying is like, that's not a crazy thing. In other words, you know, obviously, maybe the husband is more, it's more chivalrous for him to take out the garbage, whatever it is. But, 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 but what, 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 why is that grounds for divorce? You're just saying, saying to her that she should do the garbage. Like, why is that, why is that grounds for divorce? It's a whole thing is a euphemism. It means she should fill herself up as if she is the garbage, meaning that she should fill herself up here with his semen and then pour it out. So the idea is that he's saying to her that he wants her to do a certain maneuver after they have relations to make sure to expel his semen to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. So that's grounds for divorce. He's a, a husband doesn't have his rights to force that on his wife. Says the government, the bride says a different shot. No, that it actually means more literally with the garbage. She should fill up 10 pitchers of water and pour them into the garbage. Meaning what he's asking her to do, it's a little bit, you know, you can, you can say it's a form of torture where he's asking her to do meaningless jobs, right? What's the point of taking 10 pitchers of water and pouring them in the garbage and taking out the garbage, right? That's ridiculous. Just don't fill it up. So, the mission is going to Shmuel that we're talking about here that he's trying to prevent the pregnancy. Everyone can understand that that's an abusive thing. And even though a, child, a woman doesn't technically, she's not, she doesn't have the mitzvah peruvu, we learned that in Yavamans, but again, a woman can have a claim that she wants to have children, right? Um, by the way, a lot of the birth control shilas, if you're interested, come from this because um, some of the Rishonim learned that the reason why it says Yosi be'eting suva is because not because it's preventing her from having children that she'd want, but rather that he's, he's imposing on her to do something that's forbidden. In other words, a woman actually would be forbidden to do that, to expel the semen that was put in her body, which is a big chiddish. That, that, that would be that would be Hotzah Again, that's a novelty. Many Rishonim don't learn that way. Many Rishonim learn that as long as this, the semen went in naturally, then whatever, however form she can expel it afterwards or kill it or whatever afterwards is not an issue. But that, that's the debate in this line of the Gemara. But anyway, so the shot in the prize that she's just throwing pails of water into the, into the garbage. What difference does it make to her? Let her do it. He says the Gemara, why is that so abusive? Says the Gemara, it makes her appear like a deranged woman. So, you know, if someone catches her doing that, like, you know, 
We're not going out with coffee for her. Let's just say it that way. So therefore, Gemara says that that's grounds for divorce. Says the Gemara, makes a vow on his wife that she shouldn't borrow things from the neighbors, or she shouldn't lend things. What things? Not the Kvara, the sieve, a finer sieve, a coarser sieve, a mill, or an oven. Divorce her and give her the ksuba. Why? What's so bad about not lending and borrowing? He gives her a bad reputation amongst the, ne- the, the, the neighbors. Again, if she doesn't do that, it's a bad name. It's interesting. If the vow is that she shouldn't lend, of course it gives her ba- the bad name. But what about the vow not to uh, borrow, right? So it, people say, you know why this person doesn't borrow? Because they can't borrow. They're above us, you know, and they can't do it. And if I ever needed something from them, they're not going to do it for me. You know, that kind of idea. So it's all about for a very important thing that a woman feel comfortable amongst her, amongst her neighbors. And the more I'm saying that the vow is going to uh, come between her and her neighbors, that can also be grounds for divorce. Now the Gemara brings a proof, Tanya Nami Hachi, Hamader Es Isha Tisha Velatasha, Nafak Far Rechaim, Etanad Yosef Yutin Ksuba. Why? What's the reason? Exactly like we said in Nishim Asiya, Shemra, Veshkin Oseh, gives her a bad reputation amongst the neighbors. Echeni, Shenaj, Rashal Tisha Velatasha, or let's say she took the vow on herself, that she's not going to borrow, and she's not going to lend, let's say, we showed him and said, let's say she owned these things personally. Let's say she makes or neder that she's not going to make nice new clothing for his children. Because she's making bad reputation for him amongst his neighbors. And other people are going to think that it's the husband who's too stingy and not allowing her to do it. People don't realize that it's uh, people don't realize that it's that it, that was her vow, and therefore it puts him in a, it paints him in a bad light, and therefore he could divorce her and not pay the ksuba. Okay, now we continue here. These are types of women who are divorced without exuba. Again, a man accepts exuba payment. It's his responsibility. It's his, it's his, his obligation. He accepts upon himself when he marries a woman that if I terminate the marriage, I'm going to pay the exuba. But that's like there's built in that that's all with the understanding that this is a woman that I theoretically could live with, but that I, I choose to divorce. So that's when the exuba is paid. But if she's doing something which undermines the marriage, then theoretically the exuba can be lost. That's the concept here. And we're going to learn all sorts of things now in the Mishnah, which are subtle in terms of how it ruins the marriage. Sometimes very hard to see it directly. But there are things that a woman can do which ruin a marriage. And therefore, if the husband is compelled from those things to divorce her, he doesn't have to pay the exuba. So the Mishnah says, These women are divorced without exuba. Woman cannot keep the Torah. She can't keep the rules of Moshe. So if she can't keep the rules of Moshe, so then, 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 then the husband can, it's understandable. He has to get rid of her. He can't live with that woman. And, and then he doesn't have to pay the ksuba. Or if, let's say, she goes against Jewish practice. What does that mean? So Rashi says, even if it's something which is not written in the Torah, but there are certain minhagim, uh, customs of modesty, certain cultural things that Jewish girls do and wouldn't do differently. So then, so then if the girl is, is overus on them, she transgresses those practices, so then, uh, so then it's grounds for divorce. Very interesting point. Now, there's a big different understandings about how we look at this. Is it the pshat that these customs become like binding law? In other words, that's the idea, that we should, we should ascribe greater value to customs than you might think of. And then the pshat is when she's overus on that customs, it's just like she's being overus on the Torah. It's the same concept. Or perhaps is the idea here, it's not that you have to care so much. The idea is, you know, your wife's private level of religiosity, that's not the key here. The key here is, is the way it affects the marriage. And there are certain things specifically, and Gamar is talking about here, we're going to see, about 
modesty with customs that if it's against what every other girl is doing, it's not so much about what the Torah said or didn't say, but if every other Jewish girl doesn't do that and she does, so then that's almost natural that it's leading towards adultery and, or at least suspicion for adultery, so on and so forth. And then that, then that can bring down the marriage. So it's not so much the, the issue itself isn't so much that she's transgressing the custom as much as what, what that's going to do to the relationship. And that's, that's an interesting dispute here that we have amongst the Macaronim here. What do we mean the rules of Moshe? So those are basic halachas. Let's say she feeds him food and he finds out that Meisr hadn't been tithed. Right? So she fakes that it was kosher food. It wasn't. She has relations with him when the truth is she didn't tell him but she was a nida. She doesn't bother separating challah from the bread she bakes and she feeds it to him. So again, the key isn't that if you catch your wife eating the pork sandwich outside, then you have to divorce her. That's not the vart. It has to impact the husband. That's the point. The point is that it undermines what she's doing. She's, she's faking to him that it's kosher, and really it's not. Or she makes a vow, and she doesn't fulfill the vow. All of these, the Gemara will analyze and explain why the divorce is there. What's against the Jewish practice? She goes outside with her hair open. So meaning to say that that was the practice, that violates Jewish practice. We'll see about that in the Gemara. Tovah Bashuk, she spins in the market. We'll have to see what in the world that why that's immodest. Without bears, I'm called Adam. She speaks with any person she can, any man she can. We'll see about that. Abashal Lomer. Also, somebody who curses his parents in his in his presence, meaning the wife says horrible things about his parents in front of him. It's a woman who makes a lot of noise. Who is the one who makes a lot of noise? When she's speaking in her home, the neighbors through the walls or whatever are able to, uh, to hear. So we'll have to see about this. We're going to see some more. And again, the reason that why she loses the ksuba is because there's something that, you know, the husband's never going to feel comfortable with her not committing adultery in these situations. Um, and therefore, us undermining the marriage and she, she loses the ksuba. All right, so first the Gemara says, we analyzed, we said that if she's, she, she's feeding him untithed produce, so she loses the ksuba. Says the Gemara, what's the case? If the husband knew about it, nifrosh, then he could have just abstained. Very important. Very, very big insight. If, you, if your wife serves you pork, that's not grounds for divorce without a ksuba. If you see that it's pork, just don't eat it. That's the Gemara's perspective. It's not about whether she's, you know, how kosher she is. That's not the point. The point is that she's causing you to, to, to fail. And if you didn't know, so then how do you know? In other words, if he doesn't know that Miser wasn't taken off, so then how does he have the right to divorce her? He doesn't know differently. He has to trust her, right? So the Mar says, It's necessary for a case. She says to him, so-and-so, the Kohen, he was the one who took off the produce from me. Meaning, she, she knows that, that he's suspicious about it, and she tells him what, how it happened to be that the miser was taken off. He, she says, hey, the Kohen did it for me. But then the husband went and asked, he saw that it was a lie. He asked the Kohen. The Kohen said, I never did it. And therefore, her word seems to be disproven, and that's how now it's grounds for divorce. She sleeps with him as Anita. She didn't tell him. Hey, Chidami says the Gemara the same question. If he knew she was Anita in the first, then just don't do it. If he didn't know she was Anita in this Bechala, then he's supposed, to, he's supposed to rely on her that she was Anita. She shouldn't lose her Ksuba. Now the Gemara tells us one of the most fundamental ideas. How do we know that a husband is meant to rely on his wife for the laws of Anita? How do we know that? How do we know Anita counts for herself? Meaning to say, how do I know that the Torah puts the trust in the count of the days of Nida for the woman herself. There's a word here that says for her. Suffer law, law for her, the indication is for herself. She's believed to tell her husband. 
Many Rishonim Taisus say that this is in the source in the Torah for Eidach and Bizur. This is the concept that in general when you're dealing with Isafahatar, that one witness is Neman to tell you. A lot of times in the Torah you need two witnesses. But that's all about an accord or something like that. But in terms of Isra, something in the kitchen comes off, it's kosher, it's not kosher, whatever. Any one Eidachat is Neman to tell you what it is. This might be the source. Then he does Neman to her husband. So, so, okay, so that's a Neman. So the Gemara says, so what's Pshah? Why can't he trust her? So the Gemara She says, so and so, the Tamachacham, he ruled that the blood was Tahar for me. Then he went and he said, he went to ask the rabbi, and the rabbi said it was a lie. I never told her such a thing. So he sees that she was lying. Now this is a big novel. Once a woman is established, presumed to be a nida amongst her neighbors, and the way it was that the girls back in the day, when Tom applied, they used to wear a different set of clothing when they were a nida than when they were not. So if all the neighbors saw her wearing her nida clothing, so that makes a strong assumption around town that she's a nida. Now if the husband sleeps with her, we would give lashes for, that, for, for those relations. What's pshat? Let's just analyze what that means. Normally to give lashes, you need witnesses, right? You have to know she's a nida. Here you didn't know she was a nida. She, just, she was assumed to be a nida because everybody saw her wearing the nida clothes. So then... You don't, you don't, ultimately, you don't have testimony that she was a nida. So this is the Yisrael, guys. It's a big Yisrael called Chuchsak. Chuchsak means like this. If I want to know if the sin occurred, then I need, I need witnesses. But here, the, 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 there's two issues. Was she a nida? And did he sleep with a nida? So if I know he slept with this woman, and there was Adam that he slept with a woman, so now the question is, was she a nida? And the assumption that she was a nida was there before the question came up, if he slept with a nida, that's already been an established fact. Ah, if you really take it back to your source, you see there's no proof, and it was just what people were assuming. But the assumption, once it was taken on as the assumption, and now a new question is born to you based upon that, then you get, then you get lashes. So let me give you an interesting example, just to bring out the point. If somebody ate chelav, do they get lashes? There better be witnesses, right? Better be witnesses. What would happen, let's say, a single person in the kitchen told you that this piece of meat is chelav. So you trust him. You're not allowed to eat it. That's the law. He will tell you it's chelav. You're not allowed to eat it. If somebody now eats that piece of meat, would you give them lashes? Do you have full testimony that he did a sin? Well, it was all based upon the Eid Echad who was telling you in the kitchen not to eat it. Clopping now the perspective of lashes, maybe you don't have enough testimony. No, that's the concept here of Hochsak. Once something is established, now you move on and assume that to be the way. All right, what was the next case? She doesn't separate the Chala. Says the Gemara, same question. What's the case? The other of the husband knew it was Chala, that the Chala wasn't separated in Nifrosh. He should have separated Chala himself. He doesn't know. How does he know that she was wrong and he, that he withholds the Tzuba? Says, so she says, so and so, the kneader, the guy who was working with the dough, he separated challah from me. He went, husband goes and he asks him and he discovers it was not true, it was a lie. But if a woman makes vows and doesn't fulfill them, why is it so bad? Why does that destroy a marriage if she, she, she makes vows and doesn't fulfill them? What do we say? It's through the sin of unfulfilled vows. That's how a person's children die young. That's the reason. That's one of the reasons why it can happen. Don't allow your own mouth to cause your flesh to sin. So what is going on? What is the work of your children? So the apostle is going on to say that your mouth can cause your children to die. That means if you take vows and don't fulfill them. 
Nachman says that it comes from here, a different source. La Shav, Yikesias ben Echem. And it says in the Pasuk that it's because of the Shav, because of things that are taken in vain, that's why I smite your children. And we say, Losisa Shemakacha La Shav is a reference to Yeshua. Says in Wartanya, Ramir Omer. If you know your wife vows and doesn't fulfill her vows, you know what you should do? Make more vows on her. Says Igmar, that makes no sense. You have to make vows. I'm a Sakala, how are you fixing it? What he meant is that you should provoke her. Why? He'll tell her, she will tell him all about her vows and his presence. She'll go off on him. If he, if he antagonizes her and he causes her and provokes her to open up her mouth and tell him all about the time, you know, I do this against you and this against me and this against you. You know what he can do? He can annul all of them. Remember, a husband has a right to annul vows and he doesn't even have to tell his wife that he did, that he did it. So it's a trick. He's going to get her. He's going to provoke her. She's going to tell him about all her vows. Now he'll go into another room privately and annul all the vows. And now his wife has no vows and therefore everything's fine. He doesn't have to divorce her. The whole reason to divorce her is because if she doesn't fulfill her vows, his children might die. But if he provokes her and he finds out all about, all, and he finds out all about her vows, he can annul them without her even knowing. So it doesn't jeopardize their children. Now he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to divorce her without exuba. You can't live together with a snake in a basket. Meaning to say, it's dangerous, right? You let your guard down, sometimes the snake bites you. So, so to hear, one day it's going to fail and she'll make a valid vow and you're not going to know and it will kill the child. Tanya, another type of thing. A person who knows that about his wife that, that she doesn't separate Why doesn't he just be machmer? Once he says suspicious about his wife, always be machmer, always double tithe, always take off another chala. So in other words, Rebuda, again, he's saying that he doesn't have the right to divorce his wife without exuba just because he finds out that she doesn't take off challah. Let him go be machmer. And every time she serves him bread, take off a little bit of pe- a little piece before he eats it. That's not grounds for divorce. So Amrullah, they said to him, no, you can't live like that. You don't live in the snake. So says the Gemara, the one who taught it about the one who separated challah, certainly he would say it about here. It requires less vigilance. But in challah, it requires more vigilance, right? Because every single time, you have to remember to take off challah. With the, with the nether thing, it doesn't happen all the time. The one who said it about the one with the vows, with the challah, you might not rely on it because that happens all the time. You're always eating bread. So it's harder to maintain, to maintain that extra chumrah. All right, now we learn about the hair. What's the Jewish practice? So again, it sounds like it's not Torah law, but it's Jewish practice to cover the hair. So says the Gemara, is that true? Rosh Torah the concept of covering the hair, comes from the Torah. It says by the Sota that when she comes to drink the water, right, she secludes herself with a man and she drinks the water to prove whether or not she's innocent or guilty. The first thing the Torah says is that the husband, the, the, the Kohen who is there uncovers her hair. What do I see? It sounds like her hair was covered. This shows us, you see here, it's a warning to the Jewish girls that they shouldn't go out with their hair uncovered. Meaning it's as if the Torah is assuming the expectation is that her, that her hair was covered and the Kohen is, is, is uncovering it. So you see that that's by Torah law that she covers her hair. Says the Gemara, no. When we're talking about Torah law, top of the base, Kalasa Shabbat, any sort of head basket would be good. Meaning an open basket, and this sounds like a little weird, had some sort of openings and it was like some see-through basket. So her hair it can be seen but there's some sense of covering. So that, that's by Torah law, that's fine. But is for Jewish practice, that head basket is also. You need an, more of an actual covering that, where, where it actually makes that the, the hair is not seen as well. Okay, so the Gemara therefore is telling us that there are two levels. There's the, the basic covering where the hair is still seen, and then there's the covering where the hair is not seen as well. So the, the second one is the one that's only Jewish practice, but it's not Torah law. Says the Gemara, as long as she's wearing the head basket, she doesn't violate the law of an uncovered head. So what do you mean? I thought we just said 
Not that way. We said that that's Torah law, but for the law of the of of the of Peru Rajat, you need more. So Avi Rabzeir Hecha. If she's out in the market wearing that basket, we just said that it's the practice of the Jewish women not to go in public like that. Ella Bachat, or maybe you mean in her courtyard, like where it's just her and her family. But that doesn't make sense because in Kinlo, no no woman can ever live. Meaning every Jewish girl, when she's at home, her hair can be uncovered. So what the point that the Gemara is saying is like it can't be that within the privacy of her courtyard, you're telling me that the, that the, the head basket is not good enough, implying that she needs, that the, that the, I'm sorry, that, that the head basket is required. When she's at home, she doesn't need anything. So the Gemara answers, We're talking about going from one courtyard to another courtyard through an alley. So meaning, she's going to a, a semi-public area. That's the point. She's visiting a neighbor in a different courtyard, but in order to get to the other courtyard, she has to go through the alleyway. So it's not the street, but it's the alleyway. So in the street, not only is the head ba- basket not, not good, she needs an actual covering, which blocks the hair from being seen. At home, she doesn't need anything. But when she goes in the mavoy, that's where that middle level is required. That she has some basic sense of covering, but it's okay if the hair can really be seen. All right, continues the Gemara Tov of Ashoka. She spins in the market. Amar's, Amar, Amar, what's the big deal with spinning the threads in the market? She's very flirty. In other words, she, she deliberately is opening her arms. She exposes her arms. She like... She makes it clear as she's spinning to try to attract attention. She does something else. She, the spin goes in front of her face. So in front of her face is a euphemism. It means right up against her thigh. So she spins against her thigh. So the thread is going down between her legs. And it, again, it's all about drawing attention to herself. She's careful to speak to everybody. And that means, that, again, specifically talking to the young men in, in a flirtatious way. I saw an Arab woman sitting. She was having her spindle here and spinning. She saw us coming. So she stretched the thread down on her, on her thigh. She saw us coming. She broke off the spindle and threw it on the road. Meaning, it was a way of just, you know, making us stop to talk to her. So Amalie, she said to me, Olam Havli Pelach, come and get, go, go hand me my spindle. Amalie, who was there, he said a comment about it. He said something about her, like, oh, that's mamash what the Mishnah meant, that Jewish girls don't do that. Says the Gemara, my Amarba, what did he say? He said that that's the woman who weaves in the market that the Mishnah said not to do. That he said about her that she's the woman who's, who flirts with every man. Another grounds for divorce is that the woman who curses his parents in front of him. It's talking about someone who curses the parents even before his children. In other words, the simple trial in the Mishnah is that in front of the husband, she's cursing his parents. Says the Gemara, no, no, no. It means in front of his children. And where do we see that children are referred to as you? That's Ephraim and Menashe. Yaakov says Ephraim and Menashe, my grandchildren are like my children. Right? She says, so I uh, like Reuben and Shimon. So here, if the wife in front of her, their children is cursing out the grandparents, then that's, that, that's grounds for divorce. <laughs> says the Gemara Ravadamale, she says to him, I wish a lion would, would eat grandpa. She says that in front of her children. So therefore, that's what we're saying. That's grounds for divorce. Says the Gemara the woman who makes too much noise. My Kolanis, what does she make too much noise? What, what's the circumstances? It means she makes too much noise about intimacy. Now, what does that mean? So Rashi learns Pshat that she fights with him, meaning when the husband wants it, she fights back in a way that embarrasses him. She screams at him that she doesn't want to have relations with him, and therefore, it, it, it you know is taking their their private matters in a way that everyone everyone now is aware of. 
means that while she's having the relations, that her husband's can, that well, with her husband, but her voice can be heard in the other courtyard. So Rashi learns pshat, what it means is that her screaming is in pain. In other words, she, she, has, she can't endure relations. It's very painful to her. And that's why she's screaming. And that's why she's being overheard. So the Gemara says, it's, that's essentially a blemish. I mean, it's, you, nobody wants to be married to a woman like that. You want to be married to a woman who's not screaming in pain. Right, you want a woman who could, who, who want, would enjoy it. So the Mars of Venisic, and then let that be in the Mishnah later that talks about cases of blemishes. Later, the Mishnah talks about blemishes in a woman that might be grounds for divorce if she didn't disclose that she had that blemish. So this is basically one of those blemishes. She can't have relations like a regular woman. So then, shouldn't that be taught later where we talk about the blemishes? Says the Gemara, you're right. The better, the better explanation is like what we said originally that the noisy woman is that she fights with him. It's not a physical defect. She fights with him very noisily about whether or not they should have relations. Says the Mishnah, if a man betrothed a woman and he specifically made a condition with her, I'm only betrothing you if you don't have any vows that are currently restricting you. But later it's found out that she tricked him and there really are vows. She's not betrothed at all. If the condition was not satisfied, he, he only was makadish her under a certain stipulation that didn't go, then, then she tricked him. They're not married. But if he married her without making any stipulation, and then afterwards he finds that there are vows so in that case, the, ver- the marriage is valid. We don't say there's no marriage. but He doesn't have to pay the ksuba. Ksuba, we don't pay because clearly she's the one that caused for the end of the marriage because she had these nidarm she didn't tell him about. But if, if he didn't stipulate that the marriage depend- was dependent upon a lack of nidarm, then we say that the marriage is still valid, meaning he's going to have to give her a divorce. And the ratio where he stipulated, he doesn't have to give her a get. It's just they were never married. He only had consented to the marriage on condition that there were no nidarm, and there were. Oh, very good. But he can't nullify the ones that were made before she got married. Says the Mishnah, if you betroth the woman on condition that she has no defects, no moment. And then she does have defects. Not betrothed. Again, doesn't have to give a get. It's the, what the condition never happened. Concept time. Married her without making a stipulation. And now she has some sort of bodily defect. She does have to divorce, but again, doesn't pay the ksuba. What type, what, what do we mean when we say a defect? What, what is a defect? The same type of things that make a coin ineligible to do the avoda make a woman be the grounds for, for, for losing her ksuba, that type of thing. And again, we'll have to elaborate that in the Gemara. What are these things and how do they impact the marriage? So the Gemara has the same question. If you learn Masechus Kedushin, the Gemara assumes that we all know. So you'll see the same exact Mishnah is there. So why we have the same exact Mishnah two places in Shas? When we're learning subos here, we're teaching the Mishnah for the main part that's relevant to us, that if it was Kone's Hurstam and then she has Mumen or Nadarim, she loses her Ksuba. And we taught the opening line that if you made the condition about whether or not the condition was valid, just like as a tangent, you know, once we're talking about the Ksuba, we may as well talk about whether the condition was binding. But awesome, Kedushin is when we conclude the Kedushin, the main part was to learn the law of Kedushin. Tanaksuba is the Kedushin, and it just moved on to the tangent to, uh, be, uh, to talk about the Ksuba, Atu, an account that it was talking about the betrothal. All right, what types of nidarim are things that can mess up, mess up the husband? So it means specifically things that can mess up his relationship. When we spoke about vows, we talk about these types of vows. She says, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm not going to drink wine. I'm not going to wear nice colored, colored, nice colored clothing. So these types of things make her unattractive to her husband. That's the point. The point is not to tell him that she has a nether. The point is, you know, the wife has a nether. You know, she's going to say the whole thing every day. He can't divorce her. That's not what it's about. The, the, the thing is that it's specifically some sort of self-denial, some sort of asceticism that she has, which will, which will bother him. 
Things of denial. So question this qualification. So we're saying that the Dharma and the Mishnah are only talking about things like self-denial that impact the husband. Which 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 clause in the Mishnah? Remember, there are two, there are two cases in the Mishnah. The first case in the Mishnah is where the husband stipulated, "I'm only marrying you if there are no if there if you have no woman and if she, if you have no nedarim and if she has nedarim, she's not married at all." The second case in the Mishnah is he didn't say anything, and we say if there's a neder, then. She doesn't have her ksuba. So if you're going on the reisha, where he made a stipulation that when she's not under vows, why do we care what type of vow it is? Keep it the kaka, but if he has akbad, if he's particular that she doesn't have nadar, feel kumili nami, any nadar. Right? He could say whatever he wants. I, I can make a stipulation, almanaz, that you give me $200 million tomorrow. If it doesn't happen, you won't be married. He can, whatever he said. So why would we qualify that it's only if it's a type of thing that affects him? Ella, seifa, it has to be going on the seifa. He married her without the stipulation. And then she has a vow, says the Mishnah, she loses her ksuba. So there we say she loses her ksuba only if it's a type of vow that would, uh, which would impact something her husband would object to, like abstaining from meat or wearing the, clo- the clothing. Abashi Yamalolomar ratio might be going on the ratio where he did make the stipulation, but the, we, we understand that his stipulation wasn't in regard to Nadarm as well, all Nadarm. We understand it, like we interpret the stipulation, only something that people generally are particular about, do we assume that he here is being particular about when he made the stipulation. Something that people generally are not particular about. We don't assume that he is particular about. So meaning to say, yes, it's true he made the stipulation. It's going on the ratio. But our general assumption will be that he's only making about, about the type of nether that people generally are mocked on. And that's what we're saying. It's meat, wine, and wearing the colored clothes. Okay, we'll stop here. So we're basically saying that there's...